The answer is yes. Uh, have you ever been tempted in some way uh, and then felt ashamed about it? Have you ever felt that little voice that says, you know, you should do this? And then just felt ashamed at the mere suggestion. As we look at six more lies of Satan, do not forget that the author of temptation is also the father of lies. And so having tempted us, next Satan lies to us and he says, if you were really a Christian, you would never be tempted like this. He transforms temptation into condemnation with a lie. And like all of the, the lies in this series, the corresponding truth is to be found in Scripture. In fact, it is to be found in just one part of Scripture. So if you just get your head around this one little snippet of Luke 4, you're able to combat all six of the lies in this series. So I do invite you, please, to have Luke 4 open. And as I said a few moments ago, we're actually going to use Hebrews and uh, 1 Corinthians as well. So Luke 4, ribbon number 1, verse 1. And Jesus full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan. Full, in Greek, as in English, means full. It doesn't mean half full or quite full or fairly full or nearly full or anything like that. It means, it means thoroughly permeated in the soul. That's what it really means. It means saturated with and then overflowing with the, the abundant presence of the Holy Spirit. And if this were the only piece of information that we had about Jesus, we would know, would we not, that Jesus was a very godly man indeed. But it's not the only piece of information that we have. We're also told in the same verse, Jesus had just returned from the Jordan. Now, whenever we see a little piece of information like that, you know, he's just come from here or he's just off to there or whatever, that is an invitation uh, to open scripture and to just scan through, read back a few verses and forward a few verses and just see if we're told anything else about what happened in that location. Because if we are, it means that we're to kind of draw a dotted line and, and join the dots. That, that whatever it was that happened there in the Jordan is, is likely in some way related to whatever it is that's happening here in the wilderness. There's a link. Why else be told it? And if you do that, you just glance around the word Jordan pops out at you, you'll end up in chapter 3, verse 21, where we read, it was in the Jordan that the heavens were opened, verse 22, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. So now we know this, this filling with the Spirit or being full of the Spirit, it's not a metaphor for just something generally spiritual it's not, you know, flowery language to tell us that Jesus was a good man. It is telling us that a manifestation of the Holy Spirit took place in the Jordan, something that was visible and physical and detectable, and uh, as well as that, audible as well, as you read on in chapter 3. A voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. If it's a son, it's a father speaking. If it's from heaven, it's a heavenly father speaking. It's our father in heaven who speaks. And what our father in heaven who speaks says of the son who has just been anointed with the spirit is with you I am well pleased. We know that God is only well pleased with perfection. 
And so what is revealed to us in the Jordan is that Jesus is not merely a good man, but Jesus is a perfect man, and no one is perfect but God alone. Jesus is God. That is what we learn from just the word full and the word Jordan alone. The events in the Jordan reveal who Jesus really is. Now if we go to our passage in Luke 4, and we are going to jump around a bit, so stick with me. You'll see what happens next. Verse 2. For 40 days, being tempted by the devil. Scare quotes. If you were really a Christian, you would never be tempted like this. Is a lie. Christ was tempted. At the very least, could we agree, church, that Christ was a Christian? I hope you're with me on that one. (laughs) Now, uh, at this point, someone might say to us, well... You're not really comparing apples to apples, are you, with these temptations? Okay, I concede that he really was full of the Spirit, and I concede that he really was the Son of God, and I concede that he really was perfect and therefore really was fully God himself, and I concede that he really was tempted as well. I concede it all, but it was not a temptation like yours, was it? It's a different type. I mean, he's tempted to demonstrate the power of God, create something, take authority, get some angels. Your temptations are far seedier than that, are they not? If they only knew, you know, those other real Christians around in the room, if they only knew what was going on in your head and the temptations you have going on, you'd be ashamed. Let me ask you this, not Satan, me, let me ask you, do you think that God gave you Luke chapter 4 to make you feel worse? Was that the idea, do you think? Uh, Let us not have Satan do our exegesis for us. Let us not have Satan explain to us how the Bible works. Let us allow the word to interpret the word and not the enemy. We're going to be all over it. Let's turn, please, to Hebrews chapter 4. Do not lose Luke 4. We'll get back to it. Hebrews 4, verse 15. I commend to you the sticky things. Um, I don't know what they're called, but I commend to you these things. They're great. So uh, here we are. Hebrews 4, verse uh, 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. In every respect, is even clearer in the original language, it just says all. Not all anything, it just says all. Uh, all things, all ways, all manners, all aspects, all respects. Or oh, Jesus' temptation was, was holy temptation, yours is dodgy. Not what Hebrews 4.15 says. Jesus was tempted in, in, in every way. I think it means... This uh, all word, or every respect as it's translated for us, is not just that Jesus experienced every type of temptation that there is about every type of thing, even the embarrassing sorts of things that you're facing, but also that Jesus experienced every facet of what it feels like to be tempted by those things as well. The point is that the, the temptations of Christ are no different from yours, but in every respect they are the same. This means that Jesus knows what it feels like 
to have a temptation go to work inside of you. That's what it feels like. It's what the devil does with a temptation once he's put it there. Now, in my mind, you know, I've read this passage a lot, heard it read a lot. In my mind, I just assumed, I guess that that first childish experience of hearing this passage in Sunday school had stuck with me as a visual, and I just assumed that these were, were kind of three fleeting moments of temptation within a 40-day period and, and nothing more, you know, each of which Jesus just battered away rather easily. So, you know, Jesus walking around, you know, just there, and then the devil comes up and says, you know, make some bread, and Jesus goes, nope, and off he goes, and 12, 13, 14 days later, here he is again, you know, worship me, nope, and, you know, go away, a couple of weeks, and then, you know, chuck yourself off the thingy, nope, you know, bah, Satan's gone, end of the story. That, as it turns out, is not what Scripture says. So I can only imagine where I got this idea from. Keep a ribbon in Hebrews 4, go back to Luke 4, and let's see what the experience of temptation was really like for Jesus in the wilderness. Not what he was tempted by, but what it felt like to be tempted by it. Do you see how it says, for 40 days, being tempted by the devil? Zoom right in. The present participle is used, being tempted, indicates to us that he was tempted the whole time, that the whole 40-day period was characterized by ongoing temptation. The experience of temptation lasted that long. It wasn't episodal. It was constant and continual and present. Uh, some scholars, they, they hypothesize that these three examples we have in Scripture are just the worst of the three things that Satan said. Uh, others uh, give the idea that maybe they were the culmination of what Satan said. That, you know, in other words, Satan was working on these three ideas for 40 days, and, and these little sentences just encapsulate the essence of what the three temptations were about. I'm going to make some stuff up now, so take it with a pinch of salt, but it occurs to me that even if the devil only said these three little things and nothing more during that period, and each sentence of speech, each temptation, each idea might only have taken a few seconds to suggest. The effect of those suggestions could have gone on for quite a long time. We know this, don't we? Don't we know, some of us, that uh, all of us, that some tiny little temptation whispered many years ago becomes something that, that often we live with for many years, even a whole life. Some little notion that we might enjoy a certain thing planted in our minds years ago might well be something with which we wrestle our whole adult lives. And we're told here that in every respect, Jesus knows what it feels like to face a temptation like that, just like you. The only difference, do the Christchurch flick, back to Hebrews 4, you have really like, powerful biceps by the end of this sermon, especially if you're using the large print Bible. Uh, Hebrews chapter 4, the only, the only difference between Jesus and you is that he, the one who is tempted in every respect, has been tempted as we are in every respect, yet without sin. That's the difference. He never gave in to it. He was tempted exactly like we are, but it never went any further than that. 
Again, the little revelation of who Jesus must be if he could resist this and be perfect and remain perfect. He must be God. So at this point, Satan slithers in again with another lie. And he says, okay, 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 you got me. It's a fair cop. I concede he really is God. And he really, really was tempted. And the temptation was really just like yours. Your kind of thing, weird stuff, experienced exactly in your kind of way, exactly the same. But he didn't give in, did he? And you have. So, you can't really be a Christian. Not a good one anyway. Because if you were really a Christian, you'd be more like Christ. In this twist, what Satan does now is he takes the perfection of Christ and he uses that as a tool of condemnation over you. You're not good enough for Jesus. If he can do it, why can't you? Read on in Hebrews 4.16. So Jesus has been tempted in every way, just like us, yet without sin. Verse 16, let us then, i.e. in light of Christ's temptation and perfection, let us then with confidence draw near. Now we've all seen Indiana Jones, right? We know what happens when bad people drink the thingy. Your face comes off. So what, what are you talking about? Let us draw near with this? Flesh sack that I belch out of on a daily basis? Really? You want this to draw near? Why? Draw near, it says, to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Christ's response to your sin is not condemnation. It is grace. It was grace that drove Jesus into the desert. And it was grace that drove Jesus to the cross. And having defeated sin and death and shame on the cross, it is now that same grace that calls you to his throne. And when you approach the throne, what you find is that for you, covered by the blood of the Lamb, is that it is not a a judgment throne that you approach, but it has been transformed into a mercy seat by the work of the cross. Your temptation is evidence of nothing more than your need for grace. That's all it is. Let it preach to you. Your temptation drives you towards your Savior. Do not let Satan preach to you about it. Let Jesus preach to you about it instead. By the way, that is precisely what Jesus does at this point. Jesus preaches to us about his temptation. Ben asked last week, how do we even know about these three temptations of Jesus in the wilderness? Because we've got the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, angels, Satan, and some lizards, and that's it. So how do we know that this took place? The answer is quite simply, Jesus went around telling people. That's how we know about this. Satan didn't tell people this story. Hey, let me tell you about the time I lost three times in a row. That wasn't his story. Jesus told us. Why don't we learn from that, church? Why don't we learn from Jesus about what to do with temptation? Why don't we talk about it? You know why we don't talk about it? Because Satan doesn't want us to talk about it. 
And the Satan that tempts is a Satan who lies. And he slivers up and he whispers and he says, you know, you can't talk about this stuff. It's too shameful. It's terrible. You're way worse than the others in the room. You're probably not even really a Christian. You need to keep it quiet. Satan wants you to look around the church with all that you can see, just with your eyes, and, and, and to conclude that literally everyone else in the room is better than you. He would love you to think like that. And therefore, to conclude, you do not belong. Satan, what he wants you to do is this. He wants you to grade your church on a human curve and conclude that you're way beyond the bell curve. You're the worst that there is. And that salvation has some sort of cutoff point, And it's just before wherever your temptation lies. He'd be very happy with that idea. He wants you to reach conclusions about salvation and the salvation of your brothers and sisters in Christ without any data at all. And he says, okay, I concede. Jesus really is God. He really was tempted. It really was just like you. And he really never sinned. And he really offers grace, just not that much. Like your stuff is just across the line. And I'm afraid there's no grace for you. It's too bad. Your temptation is, is too weird. It's too gross. It's too sinful. It's too embarrassing for grace. No one else feels like this. Now, always, always combat the lie with Scripture. Remember what Ben said last week. This is our weapon. Always combat the lie with Scripture. So uh, flick again now to 1 Corinthians 10. And we're in verse 13. Satan's just told you, your temptation is the worst, and no one else has ever been there. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, God says, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. And what that means is, quite simply, uh, man, uh, anthropon, uh, human, uh, what that means is that if you feel it, not only did Christ feel it, but so has someone else. It's common. There are other people who feel like you, and they're probably in this church. We've got to talk about it. We've got to get this stuff out in the open. A recent survey by the CDC found that 36% of Americans feel seriously alone. We've got to talk. Uh, that number rises to 51% among young mothers and 61% among young adults. So just think about that for a moment. Just under two-thirds of young adults, carefree, Time-rich, tech-savvy, still with hair, fun people feel so seriously alone that their mental and physical and spiritual health is on the line. We live in a culture now that is more connected than at any other time in history, more networked, more saturated with communication than we've ever been before, and yet every single year the statistics show that we feel more and more alone. Some of us have things on our wrists to let us know that things in our pockets would like us to know that things on our desks would like us to know that someone in the room has just eaten a fancy-looking lunch. <laughs> God's vision for church is not a social network. 
where like our best stuff has been glossed and polished and photoshopped and put up for all the world to see, oh, look, I'm doing well. That is not God's vision for a church. God's vision for the church is a body. One marked with wounds. One that feels. I don't need a notification on my telephone so that my hand can know my elbow hurts. It's connected. It's one. We are one. We like to quote erudite scholars and church fathers and show off a little bit about all the things we know. A bloke called Scotty Smith. <laughs> I've never heard of him. Uh, but he writes really beautifully. Pastor from Tennessee. Struggled with condemnation and, and burnout and shame, says. Do not suffer in silence, isolation, or pride. Gather your friends. Paul let others know just how difficult his situation had become. So who knows how bad you're hurting? Some of us are too proud to be known to seek help. Some of us are clueless about how dangerously ill we have become. I needed medical, emotional, and spiritual care. My journey to health began with falling apart in front of a couple of old friends. We do not need a network. We need a church. One that's vulnerable. One that's open. One that's honest, one that's connected. So it's no surprise to me, and we don't have time in the sermon, but maybe adult forum will dig into it. It's no surprise to me that in 1 Corinthians, having revealed this temptation and, and how these, these temptations are common to everyone, Paul goes on next to speak about the body and about that great expression of what it is to be one, which is Holy Communion itself. He goes on to talk about bread and about wine. He goes on to talk about intimacy and to talk about Grace. If you feel it, so does someone else. Someone is telling you that your situation is too awful to share. It's too embarrassing. It's the same voice that's been lying to us all along. This is the voice that says to you, your problem is too big. You can't share this thing. You can't drop this on the group because this is just a monster and they won't understand. It's the same voice that says to someone else, actually, your problem is too trivial. It's too silly. You can't come into the group with this silly little problem like here because they'll think you're showing off by bringing, you know, a non-temptation. Is that it? Is that all you're dealing with? It's the same voice that tells one person their problem's too big is the same voice that tells another their problem is too small. It isn't too big. It is not too small. It certainly is never too weird. It is, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, according to God himself, common to man, even to Christ himself. So I just want to say as we finish with this, the kind of church that I believe that we're called to be, and that is a church that is appropriately vulnerable. If we're in one of the, uh, if you belong to one of the 17 or so women's groups, or the men's group, <laughs> come on lads, <laughs> uh, the adult forum or the youth group. So in other words, if you're a man or a woman, old or young, uh, share. That's the so what section. Just share. And if you do, if you do share, what scripture says to us this is that someone else will feel the same. It might not be identical, 
but it'll be related. Maybe right now, someone in this church is about to give up on their faith because they only have one commentary in their library and it has Satan's name on it. Maybe they're just exhausted by the one who tempted them, lying to them now about that temptation. I want to suggest to you this morning, quite simply, that to reveal a temptation is a very Christian thing to do. It it draws you near to the mercy seat. But it draws others near as well. Sharing a temptation is no evidence that you're not really a Christian. It's a form of ministry. And that means what Satan says to us about it is simply a lie. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we've been tempted, we've been lied to, we felt ashamed, and you stand at the cross. You sit at a table, and you welcome us to come and sit and eat with you as a sign that we belong. So God, would you suffuse our table conversations with grace? In the name of Jesus.